you're doing something that makes you happy, whether you get to the destination or not, the doing of the thing that makes you happy will be all that actually matters. You know, your life might pass by pretty quickly, but you'll have had a good life. So try not to be too overly focused on this, you know, outcome on the horizon that, you know, you'll only be happy if you get to this outcome. Find your happiness through doing the things that actually make you who you are. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and our next guest is Colin Jones. Colin is a seasoned entrepreneur, educator, researcher, and author. For over 20 years, Colin has taught and written on entrepreneurship education, academic development, and learning at institutions such as the University of Southern Queensland and the University of Tasmania in Australia. Colin is the host of The Reasonable Adventurer Show, a podcast focused on entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship education, and he is the author of a number of books, including How to Teach Entrepreneurship and How to Become an Entrepreneurship Educator. In this interview, Colin and I discuss the importance of education, learning, and reflection, and how we can, as entrepreneurs and educators, adapt in a rapidly changing world. Please enjoy this episode with Colin Jones. Well, Colin, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. Absolute pleasure, Rebecca. So this is really fun for me because a few years back, you and I got to know each other over a deep dive into thinking, I guess, in Calgary, right? Canada. We spent a little time up there. Yeah, and I think what was really nice about it was that the deep dive was sort of facilitated by removing ourselves from, not reality, but from the sort of the hustle and bustle every day. We, we sort of just started wandering. You said, you can talk to me, but you're going to have to join me as I walk around the campus. Yes, that's right. And, <laughs> and I think it's not just a metaphor. It actually it did separate us from everything that was on the table and enable us to actually just have a more deeper conversation about where we were at what we thought about things. Yeah, that was fun. And we did. We spent a lot of time walking around the campus there at the university. And since that time, fortunately, you've come and visited us a few times at the University of Tampa. And I have yet to be visit you in Australia, but that's coming hopefully. And But we do spend time like this remotely. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to be a guest on InFactor. Let's get started. I'd actually like to go back and maybe ask you some questions that I've never asked before. And that is, take us back to little Colin. When you were growing up, did you always want to be a university professor and an educator? Was that sort of on the table for you? Growing up in Tasmania, right? <clears throat> Tasmania, Australia? Yeah, look, I can connect the pieces up a little bit clearer looking back than I could ever have imagined them going forward. So no, I had zero interest. I mean, my dad was an educator and a high school. No, I failed every subject that I even looked at without even trying. I really didn't fit into school in terms of scholastic ability. I fitted in there socially. I had lots of friends and I enjoyed going to school, but the schooling side of things just didn't work. And I think, I don't like to use the word victim, but I was somebody who didn't cope with a time-based system where they said it's the beginning of the year, start here, the end of the year, finish mm -hmm. there and get ready to go on to the next year because I hadn't actually completed whatever I was supposed to do that year. So 
no, I sort of stumbled for, out of school and then into a job with a family friend working on a boat and just doing odd jobs. And then that became an apprenticeship. And then by 20, I was running my first business. And then I was running my second and third and so on. And before you knew it, I was running a very large business, in which was a French bit. I think in the US context, you'd call it something like Service Master, a franchise group of lots of home-based services like cleaning and mowing and gardening and things like that. And by 30, that had all sort of come and gone. And to try and remedy some of those situations, I found myself needing to be unemployed or a student. So I, I enrolled at university and for no reason other than to try and get some free legal aid. And that all sort of went by the wayside and had developed some friendships with the people I was working with and studying with at Union. They offered me a job. And so I became an educator without even having thought about becoming an educator. It was mm-hmm. just something that sort of the moving pieces started to sort of all line up. You remember, think of a when you put the magnet under the piece of paper and you have the iron filings on it. And when you move it around there, all of a sudden the iron filings start to all find their way and line up. It's right. almost like there was a magnet there. We had an Etch-a-Sketch, like the Etch-a-Sketch yeah. toy. Do you remember those? Did you have yeah, those? I do. <laughs> Yeah, so it was almost like there was something taking me in that direction because it's a direction I would never sort of turn back from now. But I didn't know it. But what I do know is that the entire time through my life, regardless of my misgivings around challenges in learning and and other such things, I've always wanted to help people. That's my normal disposition is wanting to help people, whether it's my neighbours, my family, friends. And so I see that as my role, as like a a neat role in terms of being an educator, the fact that you have this opportunity to help people. Yeah. And so, and now it all sort of seems to make sense. Yeah. That's the way it works a lot of times, right? In the rearview mirror, we can kind of see how things came together, but, but not necessarily when we're heading in a certain direction, do we actually see the pathway? We may have one vision. So you were an entrepreneur first. And then went back to school and then became an entrepreneurship educator, I guess. Yeah. That would be the that would be the pathway. <clears throat> and I know a lot about your work because I've gotten to know you over the last, I don't know, five years or so. And I know as an educator, you've done a lot of research. In fact, my graduate assistant did a little research on you. And she says over a hundred papers, at least five books on entrepreneurship. And she was particularly interested in, and I went back and looked at as well, one of your papers entitled Entrepreneurship Education, Revisiting Our Role and Its Purpose. And I know from talking with you that you have some very strong beliefs about education and the educational system, and that you've kind of pushed the envelope, as you always do, in terms of how we think about that. And, you know, one of my beliefs is that anytime you find a disrupted industry, you're going to find opportunity. And I think we are in, as educators, we are in an industry that is being disrupted, not just because of what we've experienced in 2020, which has been a very disruptive year for us, but, but in other ways as well. So my question is for you, do you agree that our industry has been and is in the midst of change? significant change. And what do you think is the role of entrepreneurship education and the entrepreneurship educator in all that? Well, absolutely. I think that the industry, our industry, say higher education, is in a 
incredible state of flux. Things like the boiled frog metaphor, you know, you chuck a frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump straight out. But if you slowly, slowly boil it, eventually when it realises it's too hot and it needs to get out, its legs are cooked and it can't do anything. Yeah. And I think that's sort of where a lot of institutions are going to be at. There's a wonderful book called The End of College. I think it's Kevin Carey or Kevin Carney that was written about the impact of artificial intelligence on higher education. And it paints a really bleak picture. Now, you know, we can have to take with a grain of salt all of these different predictions. But what we do know is that the only reason higher education hasn't been as disrupted as all other industries that are information-based, banking, music, news, is because governments hold the right to determine who can accredit an education degree. Mm -hmm. And governments could change those decisions at any time. And I think that that's something we can never lose sight of, that a government policy-making decision could expose us to everything that the internet has done in terms of making it easy for people to have startups. I mean, I noticed there's now a, I don't think I've got it here, I've got it on my bookshelf somewhere, but the notion of small schools is becoming, it's a, it's quite an American trend. And I'd encourage your listeners just to type in small schools and see what comes up. And it, there are lots of ideas where the, an institution of one, one professor, and someone says, well, I just want to have 100 students and the pedagogical approach of this student will be my teaching philosophy. I think that's very exciting, and I think it's quite nice to think that people who are disaffected or disillusioned with the system as it currently is will actually have the opportunity to, to work with people in society and in other countries, for that matter, to offer a more rich and dynamic fit-for-purpose education for people. You know, that's a really interesting concept because at the end of the day, if we all look back at our education, what we remember is the, typically is the influence of an educator or maybe two educators. I, I had the opportunity to meet the parents of one of our students recently, and they were very excited to meet me and my husband, to whom you know is also an educator because they both have PhDs in physical therapy. And they both said, you know, we are still in touch with, each of them had a professor that they were still in touch with and that still influenced the way that they looked at the world and that they still interacted with. And it's the educators that make a difference often. I mean, we all of us have a fun stories probably that all of us that have been through higher education about being students, but the real impactful change came from an educator or or two, or three. Yeah, and I think we lose sight. We lose sight of who that most important educator is. And I think if we were to really sit down and think about it, for most of us, I'm not saying everyone would be in this category, but for most of us it would be our mum, where we had one-to-one education, depending on the size of the family, maybe it's one to two or three. And what's really neat when we think about that is that our mums weren't following a prescribed text that said children need to know these things. They were responding to our immediate needs. And we wouldn't want to, if someone said, I know you're interested, you have to learn this, this is what society needs you to learn. But mums looking after their kids, they have, you know, the issues of safety and health, but then they also have, they tap into their their children's innate interests. Otherwise, the kids would be running around screaming all day and annoying them, right? So they want to work with them. Well, what happens when we go to school? The schools say, 
no, 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 we've mapped out your general interests for the next 10 years. And if you're lucky, some of your immediate interests or needs might just be happen to coincidentally align to that. Right. Or we might give you some might give you some choice. And I think that's where entrepreneurship education runs a, can run a muck a little bit of the traditional system it sort of is hosted within because we to be authentic and successful have to be able to support the immediate needs of our students who come in and say well i want to brand this lacrosse ball you know i'm thinking of some of the students that i've met in your world right or i want to you know rent out free space that people have in their houses or so we're not trying to bring those people back and say but here's a here's a good idea why don't you think about a, a parking lot or a restaurant and do something no 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 they have their own immediate needs and where I think entrepreneurship education doesn't sit neatly in in the traditional systems is traditional systems feel comfortable and safe when they've mapped out people's general needs as they view them for the next two or three years. And entrepreneurship education sort of says, well, we're ready. We're ready to work on your immediate needs. What are they? How can we help you? So, so when you talk... Yeah, when you talk about these small schools, you talk about a professor of one. Are you also talking about a one-on-one professor and student? And if that's the case, what about peer learning? Yeah, no, no. So, so you could have both, and you'd want to have for just pure logistics. You're not going to make much money if you're purely one-on-one. But if you had 100 students, you might have opportunities to have that one-on-one, but you, you'd still want to have classes. You know, you can imagine that some of them would be asynchronous and some of them would be synchronous combinations of those. But you want the interaction, you want the social peer-to-peer learning because that's how we do it in society, right? So there are a lot of contradictions in our systems. If we look at the literature on authentic assessment, it says we actually should have students doing their assessments together. Why? Because that's what happens in society. And if, if I come to visit you guys, and I'm up on the ninth floor of your centre, there's a problem. Everyone just doesn't go back to their office and try to solve the problem by themselves. People come together and try and solve that problem. So why would we want to assess people's ability to try and solve a problem by themselves when in actual reality people solve problems working together? So we need to be able to assess people's ability to work together. To, to problematize issues and come up with solutions and sell them as a team. That's what the world's waiting for someone to do, but that's not what we're assessing in higher education more often than not. We want to lock someone down and say, that's your paper. Don't look to your left, don't look to the right, and we'll tell you whether or not you've passed. And that, yeah, and you and I, I know we've talked a lot about the, the whole idea of competencies and customized paths and that some students, well, all students come in at varying levels already of competency, of skill development, of abilities. And so, you know, measurements are often really challenging if we, if we try to have, say, a student of 35 or 50, or in some cases, 75 or 150 or even 500, and to assess them all at the same point in time on the same material and really even grant a degree based on the number of hours that they, you know, occupy, right, in their classroom seat. I mean, that's really yeah. how, how we graduate people based on, 100, in our case, 124 hours. 
Yeah, I, I used the term, I'm not sure if you used the same term, I think it was more of a UK term I used in 2011, one of my books I talked about entrepreneurship education being like sort of parachuting into a multiplex cinema where when you land, you don't know which cinema you're going to end up in. So you don't know whether you're getting a Western genre, a crime genre, a romance, a comedy. You don't know what time the movie started. So you get there luckily just at the beginning or is the movie just about to end? And it's sort of like that. We're sort of surrounded by all that variance mm-hmm. and assuming that we can line everything up so that everyone's at the same starting line. And I think the point you make about competence is, is the scary bit because it makes sense for us to be interested in people's competencies. When we go to the doctor, we certainly want to know that the doctor is competent. Mm-hmm. And we know that a medical education, and I'll share this one with you because it's quite an American example. If I type into Google, okay, entrepreneurship education undergraduate, and I'll get the Princeton Reviews, which is the Princeton Reviews is a, you know, a reviewing process which basically every undergraduate discipline will be reviewed. Right. And so yes. if you look for entrepreneurship, all the, the, the sort of the likely candidates are there in terms of the ranking of the top 10 or top five. We, don't, we know those names of the, of the schools. That there's no major surprises there. What is surprising is if you look at the methodology that's been used, which is also there where the reviews are provided. And there isn't one explicit metric which relates to the learning of the students. It's yeah. all how many faculty members have started the business how many programs do you actually have how much money was donated how many students started something up within a 10-year period of graduation those sorts of things none of which actually come down to the actual mechanisms of learning explicitly on a student by student basis alternatively if i look at the evaluation of medical education in america then the primary determinant of the rankings of medical schools is the average GPA of the students. So in one area where it really matters, we want to make sure a doctor is competent, we use the level of individual, you know, the mean of the mean of those individual learnings Mm -hmm. to determine whether or not we think a school is doing a great job. And in, say, entrepreneurship education, we've got how many things are happening in the calendar? Oh, wow, you've got a lot of events happening there. Well, that's great. And you've got money to give Stuart. That's great. But how does that reconcile itself back to actual learning? And this is a trend that we're seeing more and more around the world, which is, I think, you know, pretty concerning for everybody. So let's talk about that a little bit. Learning, and I know you're recently in a new position that really focuses on learning, and that's been your... Mm. Even though you're an entrepreneurship educator, that's your discipline, you've really been fascinated by how people learn and how to create environments where people can learn. So why do you think it is that we don't measure learning more? Why are we measuring all these other things? Is it because learning is so hard to measure or is it because we don't value learning enough or have we just simply... You know, are we just, you know, bound in tradition and just doing things the way we always did? I think we have the donkey by the tail. I think that's the problem. So you're lucky. You have a very clever colleague, Kevin Moore. When I met Kevin, I was pretty impressed by the way he just sort of cut straight through because he was, you know, obviously with his history and 
running educational companies where he's training people that need to be trained. So you can't mm-hmm. just say we delivered the training program. No, no, no. Did people learn? Because you know you're only going to be getting and he's paid an edu- right, right, educator. You're only going to be a re- we're only going to be repeat customers of yours if you actually manage to actually teach people the things that you said you came in here for. So there were three, and I'll, I'll come back so our, our listeners know we're all on the same page. Three things to know whether a competency was actually developed. One, the person knows what it is, so they actually understand the competency. Two, they were measured against a performance situation so they could actually demonstrate their ability to do something. And three, they could demonstrate their learning because they could teach other people how to do that competency. We don't do that in higher education. That's not something that you normally see us doing. If we look at the neurosciences are becoming more and more important in our field, especially in entrepreneurship, lots of cognitive and neuroscience that's starting to creep in there. And so the, the work of John Sweller on cognitive load theory is starting to loom really large. And within that work, what we're saying or what we're seeing is the notion that learning, learning relates to a change in the structure of knowledge in long-term memory. So if we can or can't recall something, so when I go to a doctor's, I don't want a doctor to have to go to his books or her books every time they're presented with an opportunity to diagnose something. We want them to be able to recall things. We want them to be able to connect my symptoms to you know previous issues that they may have had in other contexts. So if we're not changing long-term memory, and if we don't know how long-term memory is being changed, then we run the real risk that there is no learning happening at all. And I think that's the greatest risk we've got. If we just say, well, I've got this material that we're going to cover. And if you go through that, you're going to be better off than you were before you started it. I don't actually know. We're only testing, say, someone's memorization of those key concepts or ideas mm-hmm. and not doing, as you and Kevin have sort of championed this notion that, well, people have to understand it, sure but they also need to be able to do it. And in a perfect world, they need to have a level of competence where they could actually teach somebody that whatever that action is as well. So I think our real challenge is making sure that we actually understand the cognitive science. And I think the most powerful idea for us all to get our heads around is cognitive load theory. Mm-hmm. Because if, if our students are stuck, like I was for many years in my formative years of learning, relying pretty much solely on my working memory and having that tripping out and being overloaded pretty quickly in the piece rather than slowly ensuring that we're not going to move on until we've actually managed to store the right information so that it can be recalled going forward. There's a beautiful book that I'd alert your listeners to by an American called James Lang. It's called Small Teaching. Mm -hmm. And I might get this wrong. Is it the Kansas Royals? Is that the name of the team, Kansas Royals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Baseball team? Yeah. So the book is built around a metaphor of the Kansas Royals where he talks about how they became the world champions without doing anything, you know, outrageously different. You know, not recruiting lots of people. And this is inter- interpretation. I could be wrong in saying this and your listeners will most probably know. But he said really they just improved all the little 1% things. Improve their throwing, improve their catching, improve their running, improve their communication between bases, and just all the little things. And all of that small improvements added up to them becoming 
a much better team. And so his argument is that educators, there are lots of little small things we can do that might take five minutes in a classroom. And essentially, they're all geared to cognitive load theory. They're all about how do we bring things into that long-term memory? How do we exercise the brain? Not as a muscle, because obviously it's not a muscle that gets stronger like a bicep, but how do we exercise the brain so that those neural pathways become more reliable and clearer and well-developed so that that recall process is there for people? You know, that's fascinating and really interesting, I think, perspective. A lot of times, I would argue, our role as educators is to teach our students or at least create a pathway for them to be lifelong learners. And mm-hmm. as I think back to your own history, I know you said that you weren't, you, you even said it early on, that school just didn't work for you and you didn't think that was probably your path, but yet you were an entrepreneur and had some successes along the way. And I would argue that a lot of entrepreneurship is about learning. Mm. I tell my students, it's like yoga, you know, you're not going to perfect it, but you show up every day and you keep each day, maybe you learn a little bit more and, you know, and watching a lot of founders, you know, a year in, they'll look back and say, man, I could have gotten here so much faster if I'd known what I know now. So would you agree that as entrepreneurship educators, part of our role is to help students become learners? And if that's the case, if there's, say, entrepreneurs out there or students out there or even educators who want to be better at learning, they want to Mm -hmm. enhance their competency around learning, what would that look like for them? Well, I can make sense of the past experiences at school because I enjoyed school. So I was building a lot of social capital and I was developing a lot of confidence around my ability to interact with people. Be they, I mean, I had good relations with my teachers other than the ones I obviously annoyed a lot and I feel guilty about that now because <laughs> I'm on the other side of the ledger. <laughs> but Bill Bygraves from Babson did some research many years ago where he and his colleagues found that from their research, the number one determinant of entrepreneurial behaviour was confidence. If people are confident, they'll step forward and have a go at doing things. If they're not confident, that they won't. They'll just simply say, oh, maybe for someone else, maybe for another time. And so regardless of how I was doing scholastically at school, I was increasing in confidence all the time. Many people around me didn't see the value of that. There were no marks for confidence. So how did he score on confidence? Oh, he's good. He's doing real good on confidence. You know, you know I had... Someone in grade one, grade five, grade seven, and they wrote on my report card, fail, but irrepressible. Well, there were no <laughs> marks for irrepressibility, right? Because this kid just keeps coming back. We keep failing him, but there were no marks for the irrepressibility. So, so there were things that were actually happening that which were positively associated with being an entrepreneur, you know, being able to sort of have resilience and cope with all these mounting failures, being confident, having good social capital, being a bit irrepressible, that, that's a very useful thing if you're having to sell ideas and things and you just keep bringing energy into that space, right? But there were no marks associated with those things, right? So I think from the perspective of entrepreneurship educators, I have a strong bias to just wanting to know who are you and how can we use reflection in a transformative way now that's tough because a lot of times we only use reflection at the end of the semester i just want you to give me a reflection what do you think 
Whereas I want to use reflection right at the very beginning and I want to use it multiple times. And I want to get students really good at reflecting because it's not a it's not a natural thing that we are born to do, but it is something we're capable of. And when my students say to me, I did the reflection. Yeah, it was really good. I said, well, you didn't do it. Because if you did it, you would have said, oh, that was a bit tough. You know, right. probably not as special as I thought I was. Right? <laughs> so, And so that's a process, again, of that sort of, self-learning and understanding who you are and therefore what your limitations are. But I know I'm, I'm very optimistic. I, I, and I say to people up front, if I give you a number, halve it. Because you have to adjust for my optimism. Someone says, how many people turned up at your podcast last week or, or at, your, at your, you know, some sort of presentation? Oh, there was about 20 people there. Well, that mostly means there was 10 there. All right? <laughs> so I tell people in advance, you know, I will round up 11 is 20. Not a problem. Just <laughs> always round things up. So that self-understanding and self-knowledge, I think, is at the heart of someone wanting to learn to be entrepreneurial. Because as you and I both know, they're not going to say, ah, oh, I can see why we're all wrong. I didn't use theory A or theory Y. That's not going to be why things go wrong. It's going to be, oh, I shouldn't have, I should have stepped back. I shouldn't know my propensity. To be too confident or be too pessimistic or to be too trusting. That's why we make mistakes. It's because we just lack that little bit of knowledge of ourselves. And it's been said, I have this wonderful book, which is sitting on my shelf here, called Talking to Ourselves by John Doris. And in that he says that, you know, we have no choice but to rely on our reflective self to be able to advance in life. However, the corollary to that is that very few people are capable of accurate self-reflection. Mm. So That's a self, skill that needs to be learned. So what I'm hearing is learning is about self-reflection, and self-reflection is a skill that we can learn, actually. And so as an educator, a big part of our job as entrepreneurship educators, you believe, is to help people learn the skills associated with self-reflection. Now, let me, you know, I, I can re recall you talking about, you know, your flight from Australia to Florida and, and you, you know, brought like 290 papers at one time, I think, to Mark. And that's a lot of work, you know, all those reflection papers. But do you have, we rely a lot of times on a model, a theory, a rubric. What is valuable self-reflection? I mean, what are the components well, of that? Yeah, I use a model called the STEPS model, which is something I've developed myself, and I can quickly explain the steps for you. So I need to create like a provocative point because not everybody's in the mood. It's like saying, why aren't you in love? I don't know. Just don't you think love is a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. So why aren't you in love? I don't, I don't know. There's no one in my life at the moment. So we can't just say you need to be in love. You can't just flick it on, right? right. And so it's the same with you know, why aren't you reflecting deeply on this, right? So we, we need to create, as Mesero, who sort of created the whole transformative learning process back in the mid-70s, and for him it was easy because he was studying his wife. His wife in the 70s had gone back to school. She was part of that generation of women who had families through the 50s and 60s, and now they'd sort of emerged from that and thought, you know what, I want to go back. But there was all these women going to school saying, wow, this is school in 1975. Well, so 78 seems like a really weird experience compared to what I was doing in 1940, you know. And so they had this disconcerting dilemma. And so that was the starting point. 
for what he called transformative learning. How do I withdraw myself from this challenging situation and try to understand my values, attitudes, beliefs, and try to reconcile them back to this to what's happening here so that I can put all the pieces back together again, but in a way that allows me to make sense of this new situation. So I create provocative statements to get my students to reflect on those statements. And then I ask them to do seven things. The first thing is I want them to try and work out what seems to be new for them. When they think about that idea or the experience, they're typically related to an experience we've just had in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So what is new? What seems to be like new potential knowledge for you? And as they name that up, then they have to follow up that new area of knowledge with five whys. Why is it new? Why does it matter? And the why is trying to get them to get deeper and deeper. So it's not the surface level observation, but this thing that's quite deep for them. Once they've got to that point, they then move on to the second question. How do you think that relates to your values, your beliefs? Why? Why does that matter? What? Why? And just keep asking the why. And there's, does that have step third question? Has that challenged or confirmed their values? And it's the same thing. Why is that the case? Then I want them to take that sort of aggregated awareness of this situation now and then I think back to a life situation. So where's a life situation where if you'd had that level of awareness that you might have had a different outcome? So I want them to reimagine a different past outcome. So I tried to sell ice to these Eskimos five years ago. If I'd been more aware of this thing that I'm now becoming to sort of really understand it, it's always going to be about them. If you do the why five times, all the external factors disappear and we just get down to you, right? And so they reimagine why it might have been a different outcome. So now they're becoming mindful of their ability to control these things. Question five is going to bring into play their awareness of what other people think. So how do other people, what's your recognition of how other people view or understand or act in this space? And why do you think that's the case? And why and why? Sixth question is we're asking the students to think about other potential knowledge sources that challenge their thinking as they're going through this process. What else are they engaging with? Is it something they've read on a blog, a book, just something that's challenging their mental models? And then the last question, the seventh question, ask them to step right away. You just walk away from those six questions and ask them, what does this mean for me as a learner? So that's where we're trying to, to support that development of metacognition. Mm-hmm. What does this actually mean for me as a learner? Why would that be the case? And then they ask the secondary question, which is, and what strategies can I employ to lock in this awareness and this, this learner? So, so I think if it matters for this reason, what can I do now to try and improve myself as a learner? And so if we do that three or four times in a semester and students get very comfortable with the steps model and working through, I'm only ever assessing that model based on two things, the depth that they can achieve through using why and the clarity, how concise can they write that. So they might only have a 1,000 words to write that reflection. So that's only like 150 words. So that's only really like one sentence per why. They can't give me an essay on one why. It has to be short and sharp to the point, right? And it doesn't work for all students immediately, but for where it does work, the benefits I get in terms of the, the positive feedback reading those reflections, I know that I'm awakening something within the students that's going to be useful, that self-awareness, and that they're taking control of who they are, and that's the right. most important thing. 
I like that last, I mean, I like the whole model, but that last tip or that last suggestion that it has to be concise. I happen to be right now, as a matter of fact, working on a book chapter for a book that you're going to publish. And you've given very, my chapter chapter, yeah, in your book. (laughs) (laughs) And what I know is that each of the sections you've given me have pretty short word limits, which is fascinating because, you know, I have a tendency to want to use a whole lot more words. And when I'm forced to, I usually start with more words and then work my way down. But when I'm forced to reach a word limit, every word becomes more important. So my writing becomes even more thoughtful in a lot of ways. And I can see where that could be a value if you know, whether you're a student or maybe you're an entrepreneur out there and you want to apply reflection as a way to, you know, advance your own knowledge or your own competency would be the word because knowledge is a piece of that. But your own competency as an entrepreneur, I think that could be really valuable to say, I'm going to, you know, follow this process and I'm going to keep it in just a few words because that would force the writer into really being very thoughtful about everything that's included. Yeah, the written, yeah, the written word's not the reflection. The w- written word becomes the artifact of the of reflection. The reflection. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people think, well, I'm going to start writing. That's why I always say to my students when they come in, I, say, I did that. It was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. It's like, no, you enjoyed it because you went across the top and you felt like you were completing an assessment. If you used five whys, it's quite excruciating. It's not an easy process. And so I don't expect everyone to perfect five whys. It's almost like a needle in a haystack. But once you actually see it, you, know, you can imagine there's a needle in a haystack. And when you're pulling away the hay and then the sun shines in and you see that needle, well, as you then think, I'm going to reach in to get it, well, you're going to disturb the hay and the needle falls away again. And then when you finally find it again, and you move, no, it falls away again. And it's that the whys Sometimes I do get people who just have the ability to write five brilliant whys, but I'm really assessing people on the basis that they might get three good ones and maybe four. Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting five. Some people write, you know, I've had lots of people who approach it in slightly different ways, and that they might just give me one word after each why. But it can be very devastatingly effective, but, you know, I wouldn't prescribe people to approach it that way. But that's just the way their brain works. They can actually chop between things this mm-hmm. therefore that therefore this therefore that but we all have the power in us to learn who we are and you know one of the most powerful things i mean kurt lewin a psychologist back in the 30s said that behavior is a function of a person's knowledge of themselves relative to the environment that they're in and for me that's a much it's a very guiding principle it sort of sits around all of my approaches to entrepreneurship education is that how can I get somebody to understand who they are relative to the environment that they want to act in? If my job as an educator is anything, it's helping people understand who they are and then ensuring that they can actually understand the nature of the environment that they are intending to act in. Which is and, really... And, and act on, and act on, because there are aspects of the environment we can change as well. Yeah, and that, that really goes to the heart of entrepreneurship. If you look back at Shane and Ben Cat and some of the other work yep. that's been done of the, you know, finding that nexus between the entrepreneur and the context, I mean, that's what it's about, right? 
Yeah, yeah. well, is it like a, there's a dialogic relationship that exists? We can't speak to the entrepreneur without considering the environment they're in or the, the venture that they're trying to engage with. Those things are inseparable. And when we do separate them, we lose the meaning of one or the other. You know, it's really interesting. A, a few minutes ago, you mentioned artificial intelligence. And mm. and I've done a little bit of reading about artificial intelligence and thought about ways that it might impact our world as educators and learners. And one of the most fascinating things I think about artificial intelligence is how the scientists that are building these models are really starting to focus in on how people really learn so they can teach that to the computer. And they're looking at how children learn because they're the most fascinating learners that, you know, learning to walk, learning to speak, learning languages, you know, they're the the most proficient learners, I think. And I think that's really fascinating. One of the things that jumped out at me about some of that research is that children learn words a lot of times by, they like to repeat words that they like. I mean, it's a sound they like. And does that reflect back to what you were talking about, finding something of interest for the learner? Is that the starting point for an educator? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dewey, in his 1911 book, Interest and Effort, which is a real favorite of mine, because it's only very small, not many words I have to read, so it's a, it's a good one. But he said the theory of effort is the substitution of one interest for another. Dewey said a lot of things, and sometimes you have to read the whole book to find them. Sometimes you just find that one quote, and it's worth saying again, the theory of effort, the substitution of one interest for another. So if we are trying to make students interested in something we believe they need to know, then that's our job is to try and dress it up, to try and make it interesting. Alternatively, if we find out what our students are interested in, then we can just work out how we can help them. And by working with students' interests and working out how that aligns to you know, a process of education, we're always going to be ahead because we're always going to have the student effort. We don't have to create the effort. They'll bring the effort. Right? And I think... You know, AI will be interesting. I've got absolutely no doubt that it will totally change the way educational landscapes look. I most probably don't have enough foresight to predict how it's going to happen, but I know there are lots of knowledge-based degrees which will be wiped away by essentially people being able to have one-to-one relationships with that interface and have them 24-7. If I want to talk to the interface for 24 hours, there will be a computer that will have that conversation with me and it won't ever get tired. It'll just, it'll, you know, I'll, I'll go to sleep before it does. What I would say is that I see entrepreneurship, the process of entrepreneurship as being very much like love. And you would try and attempt to teach someone how to love or how to be loved or how to stay in love. That would be a really hard thing to do. We know we need it in society, but it would be a really hard thing to do. I'm not sure if I can remember my four factors, but to have love, you need four things. You need to have curiosity. You need to have passion. You need to have trust. And therefore, you need to have vulnerability. And they're the four things that exist in entrepreneurship. People become curious about something. They develop passion for it. They then go on to develop trust in and around things as a result of the vulnerability that they're willing to put into play. So how do you teach that? How do you actually model that through an artificial intelligence? We can have artificial intelligence telling us all about all the theories of economics and entrepreneurship and marketing and 
and various other things. Like, I have no problems with that at all. But when someone's sitting in your office and they've just been rejected with their sales pitch, which really was going to change or not change their life, how does artificial intelligence, so does it say, you know, 99% of times people who get back up off and dust themselves off, you know, that's not going to work. You know, sometimes you might say, well, you're just too confident. You know, you just, you didn't listen to the people that you were trying to pitch this to. You know, yeah. Sometimes but some home truths have to be told. I don't know how artificial intelligence is going to help people to get the home truths, right? Yeah. So just as we don't always understand how love sort of occurs in life, even though we see it as essential, I don't think we really know enough about how entrepreneurship happens at the micro level. So we can talk about it at an aggregate level. We can say, well, in society, people who tend to have these properties or tend to do these things tend to succeed. But that's not a lot of use for an individual who's trying to make their own way. They actually, it's just really, it's like driving a car. You know, everybody knows that on any given day, going from St. Petersburg into Tampa, there's going to be X amount of accidents that are going to happen. So do we just have to take that as a given that there's a percentage chance it's going to be me? Or could we take control of the road and make sure that we eliminate the odds by safeguarding ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, staying mm-hmm. on the speed limit, keeping an eye on the road, being more attentive, all those things. Can we eliminate some of that risk? And to me, that's what entrepreneurship education should be trying to do. It's trying to help people to understand the nature of the risk, what can be eliminated, what are they prepared to accept if they want to step into that space. And so I'll be interested to see what – I think the biggest challenge for us is that artificial intelligence – will reshape higher education and that reshaping process will have you know a knock-on effect to all sorts of program deliveries and resourcing issues in, in university that's most probably the biggest impact we will have on entrepreneurship education is the university saying i'm not so sure we can afford to have that many professors in entrepreneurship you know in that or have in that center i think that'll be the knock on it won't be we were replaced by artificial intelligence It'll be that the whole structure of the university was changed in such a way that different decisions were being made about priority areas and resourcing and those sorts of things. Right, right. So it doesn't eliminate the the need for the educator who can relate directly to the learner, but it might change the way that we operate and and really change a lot of the, I guess, the operational side, I think I'm hearing you say, of how we teach and, and how we educate I love this conversation. As always, you and I have these great conversations and I could talk forever, but I know you've got a full day ahead of you there, but I can't resist. I've got two or three more questions and and I really want to ask you about the impact. We're in October right now recording this last day or so of October of 2020. We've been dealing with COVID worldwide and you know we've seen some impact pretty much everywhere. I'm just really curious about what's happening in Australia, what's happening with entrepreneurs. You know, can you bring us up to date right now in October and you're hitting well, into I think your summer, right? So Yeah, I think one of the really challenging things for people has just been how much slack did they have in their operations to start with. So if they were already running on a pretty tight ship, then COVID has been, you know, pretty tough. If they already had a bit of slack and or 
different scope to apply what they're doing into different contexts, and I think people have been able to sort of work their way around it. Must be one of those times when being a generalist has mostly been a good thing for people if they've been able to deploy what we would call ecological versatility, where you're able to use resources in different contexts in an efficient way, as opposed to just being able to do one thing. And clearly, if you're involved in technologies and, and software, at the moment, there's lots and lots of software applications for teaching online that are, you know, that would definitely be, you know, a year ago or two years ago, you were working on a software design, something like Padlet, something that, you know, you can use in a classroom environment really easily, mm-hmm. Menti, those sorts of things. And you brought that to market six months before COVID hit. Well, that would have been just fantastic, right? Right. But if you had launched a unique coaching method where everyone had to stand in a room and hold hands and hug and to create this bond, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so good. So I think that, again, that challenge is how did it change the environment of the individual's concern? Because it hasn't changed for everybody. You know, I always, I always use the analogy of, you know, if I'm in Chicago, maybe if I've got a podiatrist shop downtown and there are people running around getting angry with each other and shooting, maybe that's not such a great place to have a business. But if I'm, a, if I'm selling coffins, you know, maybe it's a great place to have a business, right? So the same environment is different for different people, right? Next door, the coffins are selling fairly well. Next door, there's not many toes to sort of be looked at. So I think that challenge is COVID means an environmental change. For some people, it's actually been a good thing because the world's now saying we need to do things online. We need tools that are in that space. For other people, it's been a devastating challenge for them. To, and sometimes, look, you didn't do anything wrong, right? And yet people right. are going to say, oh, you failed in business. Well, you just failed to be aligned to your environment because it, like the tide went out and never came back in like a tsunami. But when it came back in, eventually, it, you know, it really went across the top of everybody, you know, yeah. which is tough. Yeah, it is. And it's very similar, I think, to what's going on here in the U.S. with our businesses and and in some ways, I think it's a reminder of the importance of all these things we've been talking about, resilience and curiosity and the ability to learn and self-confidence and all those really come into play regardless. You may have a huge opportunity now that you didn't have before, and you've got to be able to act quickly to take advantage of it, or you may have lost your opportunity and you may have to pivot and make some changes to survive or or even you know change altogether. And education Interestingly, I think it's fascinating to watch because I think I read somewhere that we've advanced as educators in terms of ed tech and the acceptance of technology in the education realm. We've advanced six years in six months from an acceptance perspective. I think, you know, we're still learning a lot, but I think there'll be some uh, growth pains in amongst all of that, but you know. But that's another set of opportunities. Right. That's exactly right. And that's another opportunity to learn, right? So, Colin, this has been fantastic. If I were to ask you, I always ask my guests, what one piece of advice would they leave with our listeners? We have students and entrepreneurs who listen. What would that advice be about entrepreneurship or anything you want to share today? Yeah, I'm reading a great book at the moment by a, a wonderful Scottish author who lived in America all his life. He wrote this book in 1955. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness. And I think The Pursuit of Happiness is an absolute wonderful thing for everyone to be involved in. 
but not because you want the happiness, but because the pursuit of the happiness is the worthwhile thing. And what I'm loving from this book is if you're doing something that makes you happy, then whether you get to the destination or not, the doing of the thing that makes you happy will be all that actually matters. You know, your life might pass by pretty quickly, but you'll have had a good life. So try not to be too overly focused on this, you know, outcome on the horizon that, you know, you'll only be happy if you get to this outcome. Find your happiness through doing the things that actually make you who you are. You know, so listen to that little inner voice. You know, what actually is it? What's your calling? You know, I found my calling in education. <laughs> and I'm not sure how long I would have been calling out to me for, but I really enjoy this because ultimately I enjoy helping people. Right. I'm sure I can help people in other industries, but I think education is a really cool space to be in, right, in terms of wanting to help people. All we just need to have is, you know, the right mindsets and, and we can really move things forward. So, yeah, I, I would say don't lose sight of what actually makes you happy. You know, I love that analogy. As you know, my husband and I are sailors and for sailors, it's about the journey, not the destination. And Yeah, I look, out, on the, I look out here, I look out on the horizon, I'm thinking you know, surely, they've, surely they've sailed west, <laughs> you know, at some point, you know, and you're going to pop up here, you know, I'm going to catch the rope and, yeah. So I'll yeah, keep that- waiting. That would be quite the journey. And, you know, we'd love to do that. But Colin, this has been fantastic. As always, I love our conversations and I'd like to have you back on so we can continue this and keep going with the conversation. You have your own podcast. You have a lot of digital assets. You've got books and things out there. If anybody wants to follow up and learn more about you or connect with you, how can they do that? Well, the easiest place, I have a very simple little website, which is just colinjones.me. So it's all just Colin Jones connected together and then dot me and and then on most social medias they can just find me as Taz Devil Cole T-A-S-D-E-V-I-L-C-O-L so between Colin Jones dot me and Taz Devil Cole I will be found the Tasmanian roots right coming out that's it (laughs) thanks Colin 